Okay, I'm obsessed with Audible because it lets you enjoy all of your audio entertainment in one app. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. And with female writers and heroines, celebrity narration, multicast productions, Audible has you covered for every type of excitement that you're looking for, including true crime and mystery. And I know all of you love that too. For example, right now, I'm listening to None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash reality life or text reality life to 500 500. That's audible.com slash reality life or text reality life to 500 500. An epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip off and everyone's already on their feet. This is gonna be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. The amazing Kate Casey. Welcome back for another episode of Reality Life with Kate Casey. I hope that you have had a great week and this is a great episode. End of the week, take a big breather. I've got you covered. Okay, let's talk Vanderpump Rules first. Allow me to help you understand this very weird Vanderpump Rules vortex. The show obviously airs on Bravo. So Raquel, whom we now know is actually named Rachel, left the world of elder pay-for-play pageants to pretend to be interested in a restaurant DJ several years ago in order to secure herself enough camera time on a show about ex-waiters and bartenders in West Hollywood who now live in Valley Village. Okay. So that relationship netted her enough camera time to secure an engagement scene with said restaurant DJ. That party was filmed for TV and paid for a man named Tom Sandoval. Tom Sandoval was at the time in a relationship with Ariana Maddox. Now, would that have been a red flag for you and for me, that your serious boyfriend spent more than $10,000 on a party to celebrate someone else's engagement? Of course, of course, of course. But nothing makes sense on this show. So Raquel left the restaurant DJ and weaseled her way into prime television spot by presenting herself as a friend who shows up when no one else does. Like when actually everyone else is aged off the show or they've been fired, she would be there. She'd be there in a sundress and costume jewelry and feathered sleeves. Well, suddenly Raquel, who everyone pretty much ignored, she's at all the parties. She's even at the pool parties in the Valley Village. She was even a bridesmaid at Sheena's destination wedding, which by the way, was a white themed wedding for a couple that had already been married for a year. But Simmering was a torrid affair with Tom Sandoval the financier of the original engagement party, which began, this affair began the night of a boy's night out that Sheena and Raquel crashed, so not really a boy's night out. And that affair has continued for months. And this is despite Tom and Ariana living together and filming together and discussing the fertilization of her eggs while they filmed together. This is despite Raquel being encouraged to kiss Tom Schwartz on camera, the other Tom's, Tom Sandoval's business partner, and the ex-husband of Katie, who just went into the sandwich business with Ariana. So then Raquel went on a television date with Oliver, Lisa Vanderpump's Las Vegas restaurant manager and the son of Garcelle Bouvet. Oliver has been seen on several episodes of Real Housewives of Beverly Hills as the loving husband of another woman. Okay, 
So to recap, Raquel is kissing Schwartz and dating Oliver, who's married, while having a torrid affair with one of her best friend's boyfriends. Oh, and also on the show, Tom Schwartz and Tom Sandoval seemingly have little idea how to open a restaurant. So that's what we're working with a few weeks ahead as we approach the Vanderpump Rules reunion. Okay, also in Bravo News, Louie, Teresa's husband, has claimed in a new video made from the comfort of a four-door sedan while crying, seemingly post-workout, that he has somehow started the online retail behemoth Rue Lala and lost out about $500 million. So he says in the video, I was a lost soul, you know. I'm in the parking lot right now. I'm walking into this building. Rue Lala, what's right behind me? And it's like, why is it spelled R-U-E-L-A? It's a joke, you know. Nobody knows that. And then he added, and my last name is Ruelas. So then he said, the amazing things I've done, all of it together does not amount to what you, what you're doing to me and what you're allowing me to have with you. So special. Oh yeah, all of this sounds completely normal to people who watch Bravo. Like, yeah, the, this person's a little left of center. That sounds about right. Well, then he ends the video saying, some people wake up today, feel like I lost a half a billion dollars yesterday and I didn't feel it anywhere in my body. So you're looking at the video and you're like, wait, are you suggesting that you created Rue-la-la because your name's Rue-ellis? Like, is this possible? Like, what? This is the story they should be chasing on Real Housewives of New Jersey. I don't really care about bridesmaids and I don't care about, you know, whether or not someone's brother isn't speaking to them because, you know, something happened on social media. I need to know who this person is. Because there's other video footage of him crying at like a spiritual retreat. And there are a bunch of women that have said he's a horrible ex-boyfriend. So I just want to know what is going on because the videos that are put out are just seem crazy. So join me in this walk through Vanderpump Rules and Real Housewives of New Jersey. Both shows are enormously entertaining. And I think that you will find them to be just as much as I do. Now, in this episode, I interview the two executive producers of a great show, great show on Netflix called Indian Matchmaking. Now, as you know, I met my husband on Match.com way before people admitted that they were on Match.com. Now, it's a completely normal thing to meet somebody on a dating app. This show really highlights the work of a matchmaker. And for a very specific community, I love this show. I feel like I learned so much about Indian culture. Seema, the matchmaker, is such a great character. She uses all these very interesting experts to pair up couples. You feel like you are a world traveler as you go with her to all these meetings for potential candidates to set up on a lifelong jury to love. Also, you get to see couples that were set up arranged marriages who've been married for like 50 plus years. And you're like, I don't know, sounds like it might work. Would you be able to allow a matchmaker to set your child up? I don't know. I think it's kind of interesting. So I devoured all of the episodes a couple of weeks ago, and I've been so excited for everybody else to watch because some of the couples are so interesting and there's a lot to unpack. So here is my interview with the executive producers of Indian Matchmaking. 
I know everybody right now is on a health kick, and that's why I want to tell you about Row Body Program. Row provides access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market. The Row Body Program pairs a weekly shot with healthy lifestyle changes, so you can lose 15 to 20% of your weight in a year on average and actually keep it off. Over 200,000 people have already chosen Row to help them lose weight. It could be you too. Row Body Program members have support throughout the process. Row's partner handles all of the insurance paperwork to help get medication covered. If eligible for medication, patients have access to their provider on demand for any questions. And you can sign up online from the comfort of your own home. And this means no scheduling a doctor's appointment, no commuting to the doctor's office, and no waiting rooms. Average weight loss is 15 to 20% in one year with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to row.com slash KKC. Sign up today and you're going to pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash KKC. Most weight loss plans are one size fits all, not taking into account each person's individual needs. Noom takes into account dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs to build a plan that works for you. Everyone's journey is different. So your daily lessons are personalized to you and your goals. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your free trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Indian matchmaking my new obsession. This season, Mumbai's premier matchmaker will help single millennials around the globe find their perfect match. So we're talking from London to New Delhi, Miami to New York. Seema will manage expectations more than ever from clients old and new. Drawing from her decades of experience, insightful intuition, and traditional methods, Seema strives to help some very lucky singles find their destinies. Indian matchmaking premieres April 21st. You guys, I devoured every single episode I have been dying to talk to the executive producers because there's so much to unpack. With me are Smriti Mundra and Jean Begley. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. So first, you got to tell me the concept for the show and when this all began, because it is such a smart concept, and I have so enjoyed every single season. Well, Smriti can take that one because it began long before me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, thank you so much. Um, yeah, this honestly, this journey with Indian matchmaking started um, when I was in my 20s and Seema was my matchmaker. Um, so I have to credit wow. my family for introducing me or, or forcing me to go go see her uh, on a trip uh, home to Mumbai. Um, and when I met Seema, you know, I was at that time in my life, I was sort of resisting. I was very actively resisting the whole idea about marriage and and particularly, you know, uh, matchmaking or this sort of semi-arranged marriage idea. Um, so I wasn't really in a headspace to um, hear what she was saying. But as soon as I met her, um, I was like, oh, this woman needs to be on TV. Yeah. <laughs> she's she. Everything you see of Seema today um, on the show is exactly how she is in real life. It's exactly how she's been in the now 15 years that I've known her. Um and uh, it was, you know, it sort of started from there. And but this was like, you know, 2008, 2007, 2008 time. And it was a very different landscape, you know, in uh, entertainment. And it was, you know, I had filmed some stuff with her and I put together a little, you know, sizzle reel that I cut. Um, 
And I uh, took it to, at the time, you know, the like two or three main, you know, uh, production companies that were making uh, reality shows. This was before sort of mm-hmm. the docu premium unscripted, you know, all of that that we have now. Um, and the, you know, feedback that I was getting at that time was that uh, this show is a bit too niche, you know, for a broad audience. Um, and then I actually ended up making um, a documentary, a feature documentary um, on uh, on the same topic about young women kind of navigating, um, you know, the uh, the traditions of, of arranged marriage in India. And um, one of the pr- uh, protagonists of that film was Seema's daughter, Ritu. Um, and so I spent even more time with Seema. I spent practically four years, you know, every day in her living room. Um, and I filmed with her, you know, and that was like a, you know, it was a different sort of a tone of a film. It was an indie doc and it was more about from the perspective of these young women um, who are sort of trying to find their place in this, you know, kind of traditional um, institution. Um, but then after that film came out, um, you know, the entire entertainment landscape had changed. Netflix, you know, was starting to become what it is today. Um, and I, uh, uh, a, a new executive at Netflix named Bela Bajaria, who was at that time the head of uh, uh, unscripted uh, and comedy originals, you know, she was like brand new to Netflix. Um, she had seen A Suitable Girl, which was my documentary, and called me in. And I think I, I only realized this in hindsight, but I think she was also starting to look at Netflix's global expansion and plan their global expansion. And India was an initial target for that. Um, so she said, you know, what do you want to do next, you know, in India? And I said, well, you know, I made this film, uh, but there's like this whole other world, you know, um, with this matchmaker and her clients and like the craziness, you know, of of all of their demands. And um, and uh, I said, I think it would make a really fun show with a very different tone, just like a lighter dating show, you know, kind of reality show. Um, and so I showed her that 10-year-old at that point, 10-year-old sizzle, and um, she immediately sparked to it. Um, they bought it in the room. That was the easiest <laughs> sell style ever. of your life. Yes, exactly. Um, and then um, after that, um, Jean came on board and made it an actual TV show. So that's how it all started. Well, go back for a minute. So your family employed Seema to help you find someone, correct? That is correct. <laughs> so you grew up in America? I did. Yeah. Um, I lived in India. I spent a lot of time in India growing up. Um, and I lived there for, you know, periods of my life. Um, but I was born in Southern California and and pretty much raised here. So how did they convince you to do this, to use a matchmaker? Guilt. Guilt. <laughs> yes, exactly. Was it? Okay. It was guilt for sure. Um, it was, um, you know, I think like at that time in my life, I was like in my, you know, going from mid twenties to late twenties, which is for a lot of, you know, Indian people, particularly Indian women is like a, a period of, of crisis. You know, you could say because yeah. you're, you're seeing all your friends get married and, you know, the sort of looming specter of turning 30, uh, feels very daunting. And, um, I was, uh, just out of a relationship, somebody I had dated for many years who was like the perfect Indian boy, you know, type of thing. Um, and who I expected and my family expected that I would probably marry, um, that relationship ended and I felt like, oh my God, I'm going to be 30 in two years or three years, whatever it was at that time. Um, I need to like get on this, you know, so yeah. I have to be married before I'm 30. Um, and so I I basically, you know, my mom became the CEO of my love life and she did mm-hmm. all the things. There was mm-hmm. several matchmakers. There was, there were at newspaper ads. There were, you know, <laughs> online dating profiles, like everything. And she managed all of it. I had, you know, she, she wrote my bio data. 
Um, you know, all of that. It awkwardly stood and posed for pictures, professional photos and everything. So everything you see on the show that people do, I have been there and done that. Um, and so that's kind of how, you know, it happened. And honestly, I felt a lot of pressure and nothing that I was doing was working um, on my own, living as a single person in New York City. And so I just uh, put my faith in my mom and and Seema and, uh, you know, the the stars above. So did she end up end up matching you with someone great? She introduced me to a lot of very eligible bachelors, to a lot of very eligible yeah. people. Um, I I think I, I did not meet my husband through her. I ended up meeting my, meeting my husband the old fashioned way through. We went to grad school together, um, and he's also not Indian; he's Brazilian. So, um, but I did end up. You know, I think part of what was so revealing about that process to me is that. She actually introduced me to some really nice guys, you know, people oh, who... Oh, I believe it. Yeah. yeah. And I think it was my own resistance to that process, like, and the scrutiny from my family and like, you know, the pressure from my family that made me reject all those people, you know, because um, probably if I had met any of those people like at a bar or at university or whatever it was, I would have probably been interested in dating them. But it was because, it, you know, of my own baggage that I brought into that process that I was just rejecting people left and right. Um, so she didn't end up introducing me to my husband, but she did introduce me to um, many fine gentlemen. Well, you get that feeling too. I mean, first of all, this job that she has is enormous and enormous pressure to per- per- pick the perfect match. And even if you pick somebody who's seemingly perfect, it's really up to the couple to make it work. But you get the sense in a lot of the matches that the process of Indian matchmaking is making them rethink how they look at marriage, how how they look at a perfect match, who they are as a person. So even if she doesn't necessarily match you with the person that you end up marrying, it it seems like a really interesting and valuable journey in order to help you pick the perfect person, whether that's, you know, a year or a couple of years from now. Is that the sense you also get? I mean, I I find that that's what I learned from doing the show is that um, having to synthesize what your your criteria really is, and then having to like put that into a person who shows up and knocks on your door and takes you out for a date because we all lived in this world of like, oh, I want this, I want this, I want this, I want this, and then that person shows up and but I don't like them or there's other things. It does kind of kind of crystallize like really what's important to you. Like I, I found that. So sometimes the, the cast members, even if they're not necessarily meeting, you know, their one through SEMA, just the process makes them change and open and be more receptive to things that they weren't in the past. That's what I found through, through making the show. Yeah. One of the things that I love about this show is that you do feel like you're a world traveler. It's like a matchmaking show and a travel show all in one. And you get access to people's homes, which feels so intimate. So you're getting to know someone on a surface level. And then once you're in their family home, you get to you get to really see who somebody is. And I would imagine it has been very hard to find people that are willing to do that. What has that casting process been like for you? Um I, I mean, Smriti can jump in as well on this, but I feel like in the um, in the South Asian culture, families being involved in that process is very organic. So even if you're following them in a television show, they're not going to step away from that process. So having having siblings and having parents and having aunties and uncles all involved in that process is something that they really do so that the so they really do it on the show as well. 
So I didn't feel like it was too hard to get involvement in, in that space. Yeah. But, but I will add that, that casting for the first season um, was a huge challenge <laughs> um, because, you know, you're sort of asking for access into the most vulnerable and private part of somebody's life and the entire family, you know? Um, and for the first season, especially, you know, our show, it's not quite a reality show. I think especially people in India are familiar with, you know, reality shows like Big Brother and things like that, Bachelor. Um, and they're familiar with documentaries, which they consider like sort of, you know, BBC kind of anthropological, mm. you know, type of things. Um, what we were doing and, you know, something that Jean, you know, really developed and cultivated and sort of created, you know, the the mold for, which is so many people now are following, is like, this, this sort of idea of something in between, you know, where it's, it sort of has the sort of, you know, gloss, you know, and shine and froth of a, of a reality show, but the depth, you know, of a, of a documentary and mm. the realness of a documentary, we're not manufacturing anything. We're not creating, you know, um, uh, narratives or, you know, archetypes of characters or anything like that. Um, so it was really hard to explain to people what we were doing, that this was going to be, um, you know, we want to follow the real process, you know, um, but, this isn't, you know, going to be some sort of judgmental anthropology, you know, anthropological look at mating rituals of South Asians or what have you, you know? Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, and then, you know, you're really asking for access to a really, you know, private time, you know, in somebody's life. So that first season, and, you know, one thing like Jean and I talked about from the very beginning, you know, in the show is we we didn't want people on the show who just wanted to be on TV, um, you know, we wanted people who were genuinely going through this process, genuinely looking for their life partner and who, you know, had interesting stories and had interesting personalities um, and who were, you know, willing to open up that part of their lives, you know, uh, for cameras. Um, so it was really, you know, that first season, especially when we couldn't, didn't have like proof of concept to show people, uh, was really challenging to get people on board. Um, but thankfully we did. We had an incredible casting team that we worked with and our, you know, our, 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 uh, team of producers um, really did worked really hard to gain people's trust and get that access. Um, and then in subsequent seasons, it was like almost the inverse problem. We had a lot of people interested in participating in the show. And then we really had to filter out the people who seemed like they were just mm. looking beyond, you know, a hit Netflix show. Um, so it was really always about seeking people who are really, you know, on this journey in a very genuine way. She employs decades worth of experience and traditional methods and untraditional methods, and the untraditional ones I'm most obsessed with. Where does she find the face readers and how can I get a reading? That to me is the most interesting aspect of the, the, the matching process are the unconventional ways that she matches um, a, a potential suitor. I think astrology has uh, is very... Um, commonplace in more traditional matches in Indian culture. So historically, parents would look at astrology and find that their stars were aligned. I remember even on that first season talking to someone's parents and um, she was saying, the mom, mom was saying that she found her husband uh, and they were not of the same social class at all. But because their astrology matched, parents wow. allowed the wedding to continue and they're still married today after 50 years of marriage. But, um, so there's a lot of kind of faith in that, or, you know, there's a lot of, um, I want to, I want to make sure everything is aligned because you never know what's going to happen. So if we can at least like line up the things, uh, that we can, we're going to do that. 
I mean, I think John Arden, the face reader is, is amazing. He's, he's, he's really amazing. Um, and he's, um, he'll, uh, you'll see him again in season three. And, uh, it's always interesting to see kind of what he has to say. Uh, he's frighteningly accurate. He's frighteningly he amazing. Like it. Yeah, it seems like it. Because we were all there and he read all our faces. And oh, he did. I wondered great. that. He predicted we would not win an Emmy in season one, but he does predict we will win an Emmy in season two. So there you go. (laughs) One of the other questions I had is about what makes matching someone in this South Asian culture different than others? What makes Indian matchmaking um, more complicated than other cultures? Well, I think I think the answer is slightly different when you're talking about people in India versus people, um, you know, Indians of the diaspora. Mm. I think um, for Indians of the diaspora, people like me, um, you know, we are trying to preserve aspects of our culture, you know, in a new world, you know, as immigrants yeah. in a new world. Um, and a lot of that, you know, because just culturally, we put a lot of value on marriage and really, you know, as Seema says, marriage is not just between two people, it's between two families and it's how you sort of build the next generation. Um, we we just culturally, both in India and in the diaspora, put a lot of value on that. Um, and then particularly in the diaspora, you know, when you're kind of um, assimilating in many ways, you know, to Western culture and things like that. This is one aspect to protect, you know, our communities and protect our culture and um, and our values, our family values and things like that. And for better or worse, you know, there's definitely some aspects of it that are, um, you know, maybe we should outgrow. But um, but I think that's one reason that it's, it's so um, important and also so complicated because you're also dealing with, you know, a, a sort of the tension, you know, the generational tension between, mm. for example, like what my parents' values might be versus what my values are, or, you know, my um, sense of independence, you know, versus like the the um, the the mindset, you know, of, of these traditional um, practices. And that was definitely something that I went through when I was going through this process. I, I just couldn't stomach like, you know, my entire family being involved when I was like starting to get to know someone, you know, um, even though that person sitting in front of me might've been great for me and might've, you know, had, I just, it was just something in the inside me that was rejecting that notion because it, mm-hmm. it came with all of this baggage of pressure, you know, about mm-hmm. like, you know, well, why are you saying no? And how are you, you know, like, well, when are you going to get married and who are you going to say yes to? It sort of came with all of that. And I think that kind of complicates that um, aspect of it. But on the other hand, you know, and you see this, especially in India, um, there is, I mean, our approach to marriage is very different. You know, it is something that we consider, you know, the merging of two families and the expansion of our community. And, um, you know, and so in India in particular, when a lot of people sort of, you know, that sort of traditional mindset is more uh, pr- present, um, you know, you want your family's opinion because you need your m- mother and your mother-in-law to get along, you know? Um, yeah. And, you know, very when you're talking about, you know, quite like traditionally, um, most women, um, after marriage, they go, they don't go and like get an apartment and live, you know, just with their spouse and have their kids and whatever they go and live with their husband's family, you know? So you, you really need to make sure you're going to get along, not just with your, your partner, but like their entire family and then potentially their, um, you know, sibling and that sibling's family. And, you know, you see that in the show, so it's just a much bigger equation and a lot more personalities, you know, um, and needs to calibrate, um, which is what I think makes it um, complicated, particularly in like a modernizing world when we're, you know, more um, invested in our own 
wishes and our own independence um, than we are in this sort of the needs of our community and our families. Um, but it's also, I think, traditionally speaking, something that um, has proven to help sustain marriages in the long term. You know, like when when you're not, you know, my parents would always say this is like, you know, your your life partner is your life partner. And it's a, one of the most important, you know, people in your life but they're not the only person in your life, you know, and they don't have to be everything to you. Like you have, you build a community around you. You have parents and in-laws and children and friends and aunts and uncles and cousins and everything, you know, to fulfill your life and to also sustain you, you know, in, um, in difficult times in your marriage. Um, so you don't just give up, um, where if that relationship falls apart, everything falls apart. Um, so I think in that aspect, you know, it's, it's been quite effective, but it's complicated. So for sure. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. And now Seema is, is someone I would assume there's reverence that comes with her when she walks in a room. She probably set up hundreds, thousands of couples. In their community, is there reverence for a matchmaker? Absolutely. Um, it's interesting. I mean, even if you look at the um, the evolution of of matchmakers in India, like there was a big shift. It used to be like priests, you know, um, would be the matchmakers because they would, you know, have uh, they would go from house to house, you know, and do their spiritual counsel from house to house. So they would always be kind of nosing around as to which household has like a eligible yeah. you know, young man or young woman, and then they would carry the bio data from house to house. You know, that's how it would happen. Seema was actually very. Um, uh, like entrepreneurial, like she was a part of this new wave. I mean, she's honestly like a pioneer in this thing where it was, um, you know, matchmaking became service oriented, you know, it's like a, a, you know, client based thing. And you would have matchmakers who were just dedicated to that. Um, and she really, you know, was one of the few people who really started that trend. Um, and now you see it, you know, um, everywhere. And yes, there is a lot of respect and reverence for matchmakers, you know, um, particularly the ones who have such a high success rate and are so um, well reputed in, in their communities like SEMA. 
Um, but it's also a client, you know, facing service oriented business. Um, and so you have demanding clients and you have to please them and their parents, like, and their families. Um, so that's always something that Seema is, is juggling. It seems like a near impossible job because you're trying to find a middle ground between parents and the partners, the couple. Um, and then you're juggling societal norms. Does she seem at all rattled by the enormity of this job? Because on camera, she just seems very cool and collected. She's pretty cool and collected overall. I mean, I think the the thing that's the trickiest for her is, you know, in these traditional values, as Smriti was saying, you, you're trying to match family values. You're trying to match a level of education that matches or the things that are important to the families and you're bringing two families together. And then you present this beautiful these beautiful bio data choices that check all of the boxes that everyone wants. And the clients, the kids are like, yeah, but I didn't, I didn't get butterflies in my tummy when he walked into the room. And she's mm-hmm. like, I don't, I, I don't get that. Like, yeah, I'm just lining up what, what all the lists are. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, you want to like have your breath taken away at love at first sight. I can't control that. So I think that's her, her trickiest, mm-hmm. um, her trickiest challenge in, in uh, this generation as things kind of move. Um, but she's pretty unrattled by kind of the criteria list, I think, because she's been in the business a long time. So she's seen it all. <laughs> yeah. And some of the, the expectations are so out of whack. Is there a present? Is there something that's given to the matchmaker? Should they match someone and they get married? Uh, I believe it's, um, you know, there's payment based on um, wedding costs. I'm not exactly sure, but they're, you know, they're, they're a hired, it's a hired service. So, so there is remuneration for a more remuneration for a successful match. Yeah. I don't exactly know what all those numbers are. I'm like, I'm not in that, in that world, but yes. Yeah. It's a service. Now the making of this show, she's seemingly jet setting. She's popping everywhere from Walnut Creek to Mumbai to London. Where's the farthest place she's had to go with the film crew? And how difficult is it to just, you know, follow her all over the world? Um, For the show, we went to the UK this year that we hadn't done before. We were kind of followed her clients in India and the States prior. And so this one, we went to the UK. She goes much farther than that. I mean, she she has clients in Antwerp. Yeah. She has clients in Singapore and Dubai. And so we, we haven't gone to all of those places, but, um, but she's, she, she jet sets without the film crew for sure. (laughs) Probably more so. (laughs) Probably more so. Yeah. And does her family help in any capacity? She seems to have the sweetest husband and he sort of listens in on her gripes. And then she's got children that appear in this season. How much do they help her? Uh, her husband a lot. Um, I, you know, he's to his credit um, in their very traditional marriage. He has really become a support for her for her career um, in a way that is very unusual. I think for for their background and mm-hmm. arrangement and everything. Um, her kids are kind of living their own lives. She has a daughter who lives in Dubai with her husband and granddaughter. And um, so I think they're a support system, an emotional support system for her with the show. I don't, um, I think only Anoop is the person who kind of helps her like, like the day-to-day business-wise logistics and stuff. He doesn't match me. He just kind of helps her. her do her thing. Yeah, yeah. Her younger daughter definitely gets roped into like 
figure helping her learn the computer and things like that. Uh, <laughs> That's true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It'd be hard for me to keep my mouth shut. I'd be like, wait, you're going to set those two weirdos up? She doesn't keep her mouth shut. <laughs> oh, good. My last question is about being witness to the matchmaking process, but also the, you know, the, Indi- the South uh, Asian community and the way they look at love. How has that shaped the way that you look at women's empowerment when it comes to love in the South Asian community? Does it seem like it's, uh, that's changing at all? Um, yeah, I think it's changing a lot. Um, you know, the, if you're, even if you're talking about like South Asian or Indian, I mean, we're talking about a fifth of the world's population, you know, a billion and a half people. So, you know, the, the, the saying goes, you know, anything you say about India, the opposite is also true. Um, Mm -hmm. and there's a huge spectrum of experiences and, you know, our show really looks at a, just a very narrow slice, you know, it's sort of, you know, upper middle class, you know, sort of well-to-do, um, fairly modern, you know, or people who are, you know, who have had a means, you know, education, you know, things like that. So, um, these are people who have more choice, right? Like, um, uh, even even as they're working in a more traditional system, they have more choice and agency. Um, you know, there are people with a lot more, you know, uh, agency and choice. There's people in India um, who live just like people do, you know, in New York City. Um, and there's people who obviously are on the opposite, total opposite end of the spectrum, you know, who are um, in, in very, very traditional scenarios in which, you know, you, you sort of get married at 18 and you see your husband once before you get married. So all of those things are, are true within India and the diaspora. But I will say, you know, just like anywhere, you know, in the world, as, you know, um, the middle class grows as educational, you know, opportunities and and career opportunities for women grow. Uh, It's just harder to get people, you know, to lock into marriage, you know, you just, Mm -hmm. you know, so does your appetite, you know, for, um, for everything in life. And you, you know, like when you, when you are financially independent and educated, you're maybe going to not settle, you know, for, for what you Mm -hmm. might settle for if you had fewer choices and fewer, like less agency in your life. And you definitely see that, in India, um, you know, where there's been just like a huge explosion, you know, of the middle class and upper middle class in, in recent decades. And and you like very much see that, you know, in the way that women operate, you know, through the system. Um, but I think one thing about arranged marriage that's so remarkable is that, and I think this is true, like a lot of Indian traditions, um, it's very flexible. It's very elastic. Um, and it adapts. And you see this through Seema. Like when I met Seema, when I was working with Seema 15 years ago, like she wouldn't even she she wouldn't rarely even talk to the 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 young person you know like me the oh, person wow. to marry, only talk to the parents you know um and now like she mostly talks to the young people and you know her like the the clients you know the her range of clients that she works with has dramatically expanded and she understands also she's trying to keep up with those changes mm-hmm. um which is also really interesting for us to explore on the show is like how does this you know like woman in her 60s you know who grew up traditionally and who has been a traditional matchmaker evolve with the times. And I think she's done pretty remarkable job having known her for so long, you know, to do that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think there, you know, in some ways, um, and in some parts of society, um, women have had a lot more choice and agency and you see that reflected in the way that, you know, the, the, um, the matchmaking and like the marriage tradition traditions play out. Um, and, and in the diaspora, particularly in the West, um, a lot of Indian people, you know, kind of navigate 
very similarly, you know, to the way like anyone else, you know, anyone else might, you know, like you date, you like live your life, you live independently, you know, you, you're on the dating apps, et cetera. But I think what really pulls us back to this idea of arranged marriage or whatever version of that, you know, um, um, may be is this idea that, that marriage is still for better or for worse, a core part of our value system. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's something that we, seek, you know, and we seek, you know, and we internalize that we have to achieve it by a certain age. Um, and so you do find like people, you know, even who have, who are, who are simultaneously on all the dating apps, seeking out, you know, the help of a, of a matchmaker who can give them a more bespoke experience and, and help, you know, mediate between them and their families and, and all of that. But even when you think like Seema married at 19, her yeah. eldest daughter married at 23, I think. And then her youngest daughter is 28 now. And they're kind of looking, but there's, you know, there's not, they're not f- forcing her into anything that she's not ready for. So, oh, wow. so she even sees in her own family, the shift of, mm-hmm. you know, of, of how those matchmaking tendencies have changed and women are because of their education and and their means are, are delaying those decisions and not feeling rushed at all. Yeah. It premieres April 21st. It is called Indian Matchmaking on Netflix. And here's the good news. There's another show on May 3rd called Jewish Matchmaking. And these two geniuses are working on it. I devoured all of those episodes too. And I can't wait for you guys to come back to talk about that one as well. I don't know what, you know, the sky's the limit for you too. I can't wait to see what else you guys come up with. Those two shows are excellent. Again, Indian Matchmaking premieres April 21st. Jewish Matchmaking, May 3rd. Thank you guys so much. Thank you so much for having us. It was great chatting and uh, enjoy the shows. (laughs) Thank you, Kate. Thanks, Kate. The amazing Kate Casey. I want to thank my great guests and remind you to watch Indian Matchmaking. It starts this Friday. You're going to devour all of the episodes. And make sure that you subscribe to the show and leave a five-star review. Join the Facebook group, Reality Life with Kate Casey. Follow me on social media. On Instagram, you can follow me at Kate Casey CA. You can follow me on Twitter at, at Kate Casey. And TikTok, make sure you follow me on TikTok at It's Kate Casey. Bonus podcast episodes are available at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com backslash Kate Casey. My must-watch list is available at katecasey.substack.com. And also make sure you listen tomorrow. It's the most insane episode where I tell you about a very strange conversation I had with my father this week. So I can't wait to circle back with you on Monday. Make sure that you share these episodes. Tell everybody this weekend how much you enjoy Reality Life with Kate Casey podcast. And thank you so much for listening. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. 
Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Wondery Kids Plus on Apple Podcasts today.